Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Ada Pia Dorico and Daniel Coca. Welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. Our guest on this episode is Craig Ramsey. Craig is a senior executive with deep experience in institutional real estate capital markets with a track record that encompasses over $40 billion in private direct transactions completed across asset sale, mortgage financing, joint venture, and funds formation products in major institutional markets globally. His experience includes senior executive positions within the investment banking, private equity, and tech-enabled investment management disciplines. The episode today begins with a professional investor's viewpoint on crowdfunding real estate, which is an important perspective, especially when we learn the size of crowdfunding versus the size of institutionally managed money and real estate investments. Then we take the conversation into the theme of the financial crisis, where we are now, comparing and contrasting that to the Great Recession. We get an institutional view of real estate, especially how registered investment advisors, RIAs, are considering real estate as part of their clients' portfolios. Craig provides a ton of data, and we're including links in the show notes for everyone's reference. Though our world shifts and changes so quickly, and whether you're listening to this at its launch or later, Craig's insights are invaluable at any point in any market cycle. Craig, thanks so much for joining us today on our podcast. Oh, pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. I'm I'm really excited about the episode today. You are a longtime real estate finance executive. You've been in investment banking, private equity. I know we're not allowed to talk about what you're doing now because you're in stealth mode, um, launching a tech-enabled investment platform, but... Your background is so deep and so broad. You've been in the industry for a long time. And what we want to focus on with you is our current crisis, how we got here, and how it compares also to the to previous financial crises. And I know you've been through more than one. So for the listeners, you know, we're going to get a lot of information to help contextualize what's going on right now with a historical and a deep financial view. So to start, Craig, can you give us a, a brief background about your yourself? Sure. I guess I'd start with, I entered the real estate finance industry in kind of a strange way, at least by by way of my background. My undergraduate, which was at Boston University, was as a classical musician studying music performance. And shortly after graduation, and, and I had started in that career and, you know, got off the ground and had about six months post-graduation, an automobile accident that while, you know, no long-lasting damage, it created just enough nerve damage for me to need to assess a career change. After a couple of years of working, I went to business school. The alternative was law. And my father, who was in the legal profession, 
talk me out of that one. And I went to the Graduate School of Business at Columbia in New York, and following that, entered a career on Wall Street, focused on the real estate industry, but specifically within the finance discipline of that, largely because one of the things that really hasn't changed about real estate over the years is that it's an exceptionally capital-intensive business. And anywhere from 60 to 95-plus percent of the capital that's used in real estate acquisitions or portfolio construction is really from third parties beyond the sponsor. There's always got to be some skin in the game, but it really is, in a sense, not only from a debt perspective, you know, fairly highly leveraged as an industry, but it's also a lot of third-party equity that comes into into play. As as you mentioned in the intro, broadly speaking, my career has involved positions in senior management at bulge bracket investment banks, always interestingly perhaps focused on the private side of real estate capital. The the big move in the 90s was public issuance of publicly traded REIT equity while my colleagues in those uh, firms certainly focused on that, I had always been on the private side of things. It was an interesting side of the business where, and, and we'll, we'll get to, to points on it later, but the private side of the market is almost uniquely uncoupled from the public side in terms of how returns work, in terms of the correlation with other asset classes. And, and that provided a very interesting basis for me to, to grow in my career. Approximately oh, five years ago now, I, after the global financial crisis, I'd been doing some consulting, a consulting assignment for a, an investment management firm in the Midwest, came through and, and asked about you know, crowdfunding and how all of that works because they thought there might be uh, an interesting way to combine the financial advisors that they had inside of their registered investment advisor complex, their, their parent had that, with you know, raising capital from those clients for a captive investment management firm. And uh, I built that platform out, uh, rolled that out, got it successfully adopted by Fidelity Investments on their Wealth Advisor Solutions platform, really covering over a lot of the at the time at least, shortcomings in the crowdfunding business, and here we are now. I'm presently working, as you mentioned, on a a tech-enabled investment manager that is operating right now in stealth mode. So that sort of brings us to date. I don't know if there's anything in there you want to drill down on. I mean, I would want to drill down on everything, <laughs> but actually, let's let's start with with this. I would love to just quickly talk about the crowdfunding sure. first before we really get into like the, the the what I mean. I'm super interested in the finance um, side of everything, but you know, but let's talk a little bit about crowdfunding because we have all different experience. You know, as you know, I helped launch crowdfunding right. in late 2013. Came at it with my own kind of background coming from hedge funds and you know seeing this go retail i saw the the potential but i also saw the need for institutional capital from the perspective of 
of essentially scale of allowing a business to thrive before we you could really onboard retail. So it's an interesting, you know, it's been an interesting few years. So what's been your perspective coming into it from your very deep background? Well, sort of let's let's take a step back and talk about the quantum of the market that we're talking about because the 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 theme I view very much crowdfunding is an industry which best case is still sorting itself out. You know, the it it largely, not entirely because there have been some offshoots, but its its incubation was really in the wake of the Jobs Act and and the ability of typically smaller issuers to raise more retail kind of capital. The the idea with the Jobs Act was to streamline that process, reduce regulatory requirements so that you could reduce the cost of issuing equity to new startup kinds of ventures that historically had been locked out of the more institutional side of the world. That now that that's certainly a logical reaction to it. But then the question becomes, okay, how do we build a business if we if we already start with the notion that there is an in-place institutional market for real estate investment management? Let's keep it to real estate, although it generally applies to other kinds of alternatives, whether it's private equity or hedge funds. That's the one that's sort of real estate is the one that's received most of the attention. The... the major projections that I have seen, and these, these data come from Ernst & Young in a report that was put out about nine months ago, we're doing this the first week of June 2020, estimated that in 2021, year end, all real estate crowdfunding globally would total about 9 billion US dollars, or, or the equivalent in, in local currency, okay? And that's fine. That's very nice. But just to put it into context, globally, institutional investment managers, there are 78 institutional global investment managers who individually exceed the size of the entire crowdfunding market. We're talking about, and, and just again, by way of context, Real estate, institutional real estate investment management, as we know it, has basically been around for 45 years or so. ERISA, the Employment Retirement Income Security Act, was passed in 74, 75. I know Gerald Ford signed it. Its fundamental underpinning was, okay, if you run a pension fund, you have to be diversified. And the market responded with that by creating a series of not only real estate, but private equity managers. And this was you know, just as private equity to do corporate acquisitions was being formed with the idea that the investors would be pension funds who had to diversify. All of that itself, and I'm sure we'll get to this later, is was backed by a great deal of academic research on modern portfolio theory, primarily by Harry Markovitz, who ultimately won a Nobel Prize, I wanna say in the late 50s for this work. It took 15 years for it to become, you know, more than just a nice idea and, and, and take on the force of law. But since that time in the mid 1970s, you've seen globally this 
industry of investment management targeting the institutions as clients as investors grow from zero to you know several trillion dollars with you know a couple hundred firms managing about 80% of the global real estate investment capital that's out there it, and it's it 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 totals in the trillions of dollars completely so while crowdfunding you know has gotten off perhaps to a nice start you know and it looks like it's starting to sort itself out a little bit with a couple of folks who've raised over a billion dollars as as platforms most of them have not most of them are still bound by that shaking out process and and just a couple of themes around that i i think if i were to assess it right now I think although it's getting better you're still talking about investments themselves that are on sub institutional quality largely driven by transaction size limits which may just be a function of you know I I have 100,000 investors in my database and only 5,000 of them are going to invest in any one deal and that puts a cap on how much I can raise if my average yeah. investments but yeah, those right. those kinds of things I think you're also seeing if not questioning at least some concern over the fact that the asset management function is essentially being performed by de novo asset managers. I mean these are these are firms that 5 years ago most of them did not exist and now they're taking on investor capital and they're investing that and even if they have great deals, you know, it's still an investment product so you have to take a look at who it is that is going to be the steward of that of that capital they do and you mentioned this earlier they are all facing the issue despite the fact that they use technology in their operations to wring cost out of what would otherwise be what you know clerical administrative you know human labor and they can automate that through technology and move funds and all of that and save a lot of money crowdfunding still represents a fairly expensive way to raise equity you know when you start layering on even in the the upper reaches of it with some of the title 4 stuff the the reg a plus where you can raise 50 million dollars a year that's still a quasi public offering the standards are a little bit lower yeah. it's very expensive all of a sudden and you're looking by the time you load the marketing budgets in and all of the legal fees and everything else yeah you can raise 50 million bucks per year inside that vehicle but at least in your first year you're looking at at something on the order of 2 and 1/2 million dollars of expense 5% and all of a sudden you're kind of faced with the age old problem how do you scale and with the limitations on size it becomes very difficult to scale those costs by by contrast the institutional market in which 5 and 7 and 10 billion dollar funds are not uncommon you know i i just told you there are close to 80 firms that in and of themselves have 10 billion dollars of assets under management you can play in much larger uh check sizes asset sizes and and you know the absolute dollar cost of an attorney's bill for instance if that gets spread over 100 million dollars that's a very different drag on 
on return than it would be if that transaction was 10 million or 5 million, et cetera. And so they, they're, they, while the tech has sort of taken a whack at, at the cost problem, it hasn't eliminated it. And you're still sort of stuck with that. And, and when you compare the costs of crowdfunding relative to the investment management industry that, that services the institutions, there's still a huge gulf between the, that cost burden that, that, the, you know, the, that the retail investor is doing. They're going to sort it out just like everybody else has. You know, I was I was joking with uh, a colleague earlier that on this on this very topic that you know in in the early 1900s there were hundreds of automobile manufacturers in the United States. This isn't this is I, I, I say that because we're not dealing with anything different in that sense. It's it's a new industry. It's going to have to shake out. We're going to have to figure out, and it will go through a period of consolidation following best practices, et cetera. And it and already so, has been, right? It already, it, well, it already it has been. The first failure, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and we'll see how it shakes out. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you're saying I, I did a I did a quick search. This is not like a Jeopardy question. I already have the answer to in my head, but the size of the real estate market. So you talked about eight billion dollars in in assets in crowdfunding, just the whole thing. The whole thing's eight, right? You said eight billion. Yep. Um the size not, of the yeah. give or take. Sure. Yeah. Yep. So and based on like 2018 data from from the MS from MSCI, the size of the professionally managed global real estate investment market is almost nine trillion dollars. Right. <laughs> yeah. so, it's a thousand times bigger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Just a different way of saying the same thing. Look, yeah. it's a new industry. It has to grow up. It has to gain scale. It has to get size. You know, let's talk about it in a few years when we right. see some of that traction and who at least the early winners are going to be. But it's got a long way to go. I mean, you're comparing that or we're comparing that to an institutional investment market that has been, you know, growing for 45 years and has sorted a lot of those big problems out of the, out of the mix. Like any new market, though, you know, the crowdfunding private syndication world, you know, really popped up as a product of, you know, shortcomings of the existing model, right? And, you know, individual retail investors tend to have lofty expectations, to, to say it nicely, probably bordering, bordering on unreasonable a lot of times. But, you know, they want direct access to high quality institutional real estate. They want to pay you know, very low fees. They want the ability to make commitments on a, on a deal by deal basis. They want all of the, you know, ongoing portfolio management and financial reporting that, you know, comes with an institutional deal, lawyers, accountants, what have you. It can't all be done. But at the same time, you know, the existing model, you know, hasn't provided enough of an outlet for the average retail investor. And you see that when you look at larger aggregated data around you know, percentages of uh, investor portfolios in alternatives, specifically real estate, that number you know, typically drags, uh, especially for those folks outside the you know, top half of percent of, of earners in the country, typically drags the 20% 
suggestion, you know, you see from a lot of financial advisors. And so, you know, the question really is, you know, where are we in this process, stage one, stage two, of creating something that, you know, does appeal to the individual investor who wants something that is a little bit more hands-on than a REIT, maybe more transparent than a REIT, gains that aren't correlated with the stock market, but isn't necessarily uh, a kind of shout to the past of the country club equity or writing this small check. And so somewhere there's got to be a hybrid. You know, one of the benefits, in my opinion, of, of venture capital is that you know, it gives industries the opportunity to experiment a bit, to see what works with, you know, before you have a company that can exist on its own, i.e. a, a profitable company, we can go out, we can, we can kind of play around. And the first wave of crowdfunders, I think, did a great job of, of showing us that there's demand for this type of product on the investor side. The question now is, you know, how do you optimize the investor experience so that you're getting all of those things that you'd want to see uh, from an institution or as an institutional investor, but you're able to do it on terms that that work for you. And so, you know, that's what the problem I think we're we're trying to solve here. If you have uh, comments or thoughts on that long soliloquy I just went on, I would love to hear them. Totally agree with all of it. The I I, I think you're right and. There are several issues, some of which I, I pointed out in in my earlier comments on it. You're correct that you know earlier syndications included the typical country club syndication. That was largely, if you look at it from a broad market perspective, that was not a broadly available product. It was done by affinity, you know, and they call it a country club syndication, but it was hey, I know through some social connection or some business connection, a local real estate developer who is pulling together a small deal to do a local shopping center or even in the largest case in that kind of thing, you know, uh, I don't know, building a, you know, 200 unit multifamily and, and that pretty much taps out the quantum available through that personal networking kind of thing that, that any local developer might have. You know, what's really being attempted here is to not commoditize the real estate investment itself, but to commoditize the product or the wrapper around which individual investors gain access to high quality real estate investments. That's That to me, it's it's more... And look, maybe this is just because this is what I've been focusing on for the past five years. But I think the plumbing in all of this really makes a difference. You know, I've had the benefit of, of being inside the institutional real estate world where I've seen the last 20, 25 years of growth in that business. And, you know, once it got off the ground and it was mandated by law that you had to diversify. So there was that tailwind to the investment managers that they knew they had an installed client base that had to buy their product or that of their competitors, but the industry as a whole had, had a tailwind and it's been, it's, it's grown radically as the baby boom first approached and then entered retirement you know, the pension fund system has grown alongside it so that there was always the need to put more and more and more money in. 
what you're describing on the retail investor side is is sort of a different kind of thing. <clears throat> Pardon me. There is certainly the need for the uncorrelated return you mentioned, the absolute return offered by real estate, and, and just within a portfolio construction, real estate alongside other direct alternatives really plays a very powerful diversifying role to return. And, and I'm, I'm hearing this post-COVID or, or post-inception of COVID as registered investment advisors and people, you know, contacts in the industry are saying, look, the need has never been greater to access that uncorrelated return. I think the question is, is still, how does that happen on an economical basis where just using the institutional universe as, as uh, a measuring stick, you know, where you can still have highly professional investment managers advising these vehicles and, and pulling together these vehicles for the benefit of the individual investor. And that, that's where I think, and just by way of example, that, that a firm like Alpha differs greatly from the typical crowdfunding outlet. With, you know, crowdfunding is, is almost always the self-directed investor who's got to do all that work him or herself. Your structure in providing it, yes, you, you have you know, tech-enabled administrative processes, capital movement processes, you're pushing out information to investors via electronic means. All of those are means of, of putting a lasso around the, the fee bucket that would otherwise have to be charged, but it's providing the third-party advisory perspective on things that it, to me is is a huge part of it because if you're trying to compare this to institutional investing the institutions have world-class advisors to them and and they've scaled that business and they've scaled it around size you know if you get the best advisors in the world they're going to have to be paid a certain amount of money and they get you know that tears up just like every other the quality of any other occupation it's easier to spread that cost over a massive portfolio. And, and the real trick is how do you scale those costs down to make not only the access to institutional deals available, but also make it such at, at reasonable fees and at reasonable minimums. Those are, those are really the, the, the balls that are being juggled in the air. And, and, it's largely around that that I think the industry is going to shake out as, as it goes forward. Yeah, I think, thank you, first of all, for the, you know, for the, for the shout out, I guess, for, for Alpha. I mean, we, we've always had the perspective of technology being in service to the business as opposed to it being a technology business. If this is a real estate business and that even for myself, when I first joined real estate crowdfunding and, and I came at it not from the perspective of a professional real estate investor and I thought, how fantastic, we're going to change the world, we're going to change the industry, you know, lofty ideals with good intentions. And then it, it quickly became apparent that no, this is real estate business and that is what must be focused on and technology in and of itself is not going to change how you evaluate underlying risk in real estate. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, and I would characterize it in the following way. 
the tech really gets to the how, it doesn't get to the what. That's, that's, it's still real estate investment management. How you do it, you know, the day-to-day of checking a rent roll, making sure that the rent collections are okay and all that stuff, that's still pretty much the same. It's all the connective tissue to pull all that stuff together that we can now automate and copy paste and that works. You know, and it, it rings an enormous amount out of the thing. It's it's a, a, a former colleague of mine once described his view of at least early meetings with potential crowd funders who were trying to raise money from him or use them as an underlying fund sponsor, that kind of thing. He said, I just got so tired of people showing up telling me that the business was going to be revolutionized and that it was no longer going to be investment management. It was going to be technology and that he, you know, at the time, a 25 year veteran of investment management was being told this by four groovy guys who had a server. (laughs) And I, you know, it's, and I'll, I'll, I'll put that in the, in the, the sources list that I give you. I'll, I'll put his name up. He's, he's a longtime colleague and friend and it just captured it for me. That and I, and I think that view of things has certainly changed. I think we're we're now past that initial euphoria. Oh my God, this is going to change the world. Maybe it's not so much about disruption as it is creating efficiencies and optimizing the trade offs. And tech will now help us get there. But you still need top flight investment management. You still need top flight deals on the retail side. You'd like it to be at low minimum so you can broaden the potential marketplace and you know a f- the cost that goes into it can be scaled down to a point via technology and using standardized documentation all kinds of other other things but that's basically describing how tech has affected every single industry on the planet earth right, right. that's and right so, yeah. yeah, we're we're not that different, are we? Yeah, no, we're we're not. And I think just to to take this a little bit into some of the financial markets, you know, the Jobs Act came at a time, you know, it came out of the financial crisis, like so much innovation. What something that I find really fascinating is the Chinese symbol for crisis is composed of two characters: one means danger, and the other means opportunity. And there's always all this opportunity that comes from a crisis if, if we're geared, you know, if that's our focus. And so the Jobs Act and, and all this innovation and the tech and the VCs and all this stuff, it came from the, the crisis of 2008 and we're in a crisis now. So I would love to shift the conversation into the you know, the crisis that we're currently in, what you're seeing and also how it compares to prior crises that that you've lived and worked through? Um, yeah, I, I guess just, again, just some, some bookends on what we're seeing here. Uh, the easiest way to measure this in financial terms, the Dow on February 12th hit a peak of 29,500-ish, so just shy of 30,000. Three weeks later, it was below 19,000. It had lost 37% of its value in, in three weeks. 
since then, 90 days after that low, exactly 90 days after that low, which came on, on March 4th, we're back up to 26.3, 26.300-ish, a couple of points below. So we lost 37% initially. We're already back up so that the, we haven't gotten to the peak again yet, but we're still only 11% down. Now, that's remarkably resilient and re- remarkably quick. However, <laughs> and, you know, this is, this is where the nuance comes in, you know, the Dow is not a measure of current assessment. It's a measure of current assessment of future events as they play out for these particular companies. These are longstanding industrials, so the Dow may not be the best proxy, which is the easiest for me to get, you know, immediate data on. But the, 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 the idea here being, yeah, we got whacked by almost 40%, but three quarters of that loss has already been recouped. Now we're in territory where it's like, oh yeah, it's, it's, you know, 11% off. That's not great, but you know, we're in correction territory. We're not in, oh my God, you know, what are we, what are we going to do? Compare that to 2008, which was the, the, the global financial crisis, and, and we'll get to some of the real differences, but just comparable numbers. September 1st of 07, the Dow was just under 14,000. Five months later, it was 7,000, a 49% drop. And interestingly, not only was the drop deeper, 37 versus 49 then, that it took much, much longer to to come back. It took two years to revert to the same 11% discount, if you want to look at it that way, the same 11% loss that we recovered in 90 days in the most recent crisis. So things are moving faster. I, I think that really kind of gets to, you know, what's the difference between these crises? And, and, we talked a little earlier uh, b- before we came on that you know we're looking at a market right now or an economy, pardon me, where second quarter 2020 looks like GDP is going to be a full 40%, 40% lower than second quarter 2019. And so we're, we're trying to pull all these data together the main thing is you can already see, you know, yes, unemployment claims are brutal. They're up 40, 42 million since this started. The pace of new claims is slowing down. You are starting to see things opening back up. You know, it may be a little slower. A lot of the future is going to depend on how quickly that opens up and whether we get hit with a second wave of COVID or, or not. But the bottom line is we came into the COVID crisis in pretty solid, you know, you could say everything was already fully priced into the market. We had historically low unemployment across demographics. We had growing GDP, if not four or three and a half percent, it was still better than it had been, you know, for a number of years, it was still pretty solid. You can argue about tariffs and all that other nonsense, but we went into this crisis in relatively good shape with 
the banks themselves also being in much better shape than they were previously. Because we can't forget that the the global financial crisis, 07, going into 08, 09, was really a credit-led crisis. You know, we had a housing bubble. We, we had a lot of leverage on, on personal and corporate balance sheets. They're, they're, that leverage is much lower. I think just in terms of the real estate business, you know, private equity funds that focused on real estate were about 65% levered on average. They're now about 52, 53% levered on average. So not only do we have less leverage, which is, you know, less of an overhang and an albatross hanging around the neck, there's also much more dry powder that's that's sitting there to provide rescue capital and the banks are much better capitalized than they were at the time. They're not on sort of that tripwire. You know, they, there will be bank losses and you can probably count on a good year's worth of those, but I don't think you're seeing anyone talking about big banks being in danger of insolvency, for instance. You know, it, and, and so in that sense, I think this one is, is really, really different. You know, then the, then the question is, how, how rapid is the recovery? We don't know. I mean, we know what it took to get out of the last one. Prices on real estate took about 36 months from the low to get back to pre-crisis levels. The latest numbers I've seen on that same index, which comes out of Green Street Advisors, a very, very reputable firm, <clears throat> the decline in 08 in uh, commercial property prices was 37%. The peak pre-COVID to now is about 11%. And we're already starting to see some improvement, not in the index itself, that's kind of a lagging indicator, but at least some of the underlying fundamentals where, oh, okay, the worst is behind us, at least the pace of decline is slowing, and that sort of tells us we ought to be coming out of this. So I do think, broadly speaking, largely because of the underlying causes of this, you know, 08 was a credit-induced crisis. It took a ton of time to work that through on balance sheets. This one's not the same. There was generally widely available credit. It was inexpensive. You know, it's still largely there. The banks are going to have to deal with some losses like they did then, but it's going to be nowhere near that problem. And there's a lot more private equity on the sidelines to, to, to pick up that slack. And it's really just going to be, when do you get back to a, a market where willing buyers and willing sellers are transacting in the absence of distress because I, I'm always very leery about looking at things that get done. There may be great opportunities to do that, but that will be much more episodic, if you will. Hey, here's a great deal. It's time to pounce and we can buy it cheaply enough so that we can ride out another year of problems if that's what we have to do. It's it's a great time, but that's that's unique. That's ad hoc. It's not systemic. You know, we'll know we'll know when we're out of this thing when things start to trade again, and where where sellers aren't looking at last year's cap rates, <laughs> and, and and they're actually transacting. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing from my perspective is that, you know, when we were, were coming out of, of 2008 and, you know, depending on who you talk to, even people on, on our team, they would say, you know, we never really even paid the price for, for 2008 where there's some things happening, you know, in the background in the way of, you know, quantitative easing and what have you that, you know, really allowed us to escape in the short term without really feeling the punishment and you know when does that come does it come you know down the line uh, at some point but that aside briefly you know the the question then was you know where do we need to see certain financial numbers in order to you know warrant starting to make these trades again today it feels a little bit different in that the the data point that we're looking for is much more qualitative, right? And there's a lot of uncertainty around what the world is going to look like going forward from a pure behavior perspective as opposed to you know a financial perspective. And so be interested to hear uh, how you think that distinction plays into the ultimate timing of you know any any rebound we could expect to see here. Yeah, there was actually, I will give a plug here. Um, there was an interesting short article by a, a guy named Matt Hershey, who is a, a business acquaintance of mine who works at a firm called Hodus Weil. They are, you know, the very, very top echelon of private equity oriented firms in the real estate space. And they've been very active in publishing a lot of thought pieces as this is going on. And and Matt makes exactly that case. And he says, you know, when we were when we were looking at at, at reaction to the 08 global financial crisis, you know, it was painful, it was horrible, it was you know, awful, but at least we had very solid numbers on it. We could measure Fed's reaction. We could look at the banks. We these were all relatively objective data points that were available, and and that made decision making much much easier. What you're describing now, and and I agree with it, is there are going to be a lot of decisions that are not made based on underlying objective data. They're going to be made by choice. For instance, what does this mean for housing in New York City? You know, the typical, the typical, you know, high rise has 35 stories and an elevator that's six feet by six feet. You know, that's, that's, less than optimal in terms, and, and, and how does that work? Well, a lot of that is going to be dependent on how the residents feel about that. Are they locked into that? Is that a condominium kind of product or, or, or that sort of thing? And so the short answer to what you're saying is it's going to be really hard to get solid metrics on it because so much of it is going to be wrapped up in human choice and human feelings where it's not just data driven. It's going to be feelings driven and, and concern driven. That's squishier stuff. You can measure it after the fact by seeing reactions, but it's hard to do it in real time because it's, it's so squishy and it's so imprecise, if that makes sense. Yeah. And the other thing that comes to mind when, when you're saying this is, you know, as far as 
behavior, but also people's ability to pay rent with what with the the job losses. And for for those who are on the unemployment and are getting the federal subsidy, especially they're able to pay their rent, you know, people Mm -hmm. that maybe weren't even making this much money before now they're making more and they're able to pay rent in kind of the lower, lower income bracket. But as we also talked about, you know, there's job losses going upstream. And so how, how are people going to be able to pay rent in six months, basically is what I'm getting at, because we're still going to see more job losses, even though the, you know, things will start to reopen. We also have civil unrest, which is a topic for another time, but that's also going to affect a lot of things. We don't know the repercussions of that yet. So, you know, as you said, you know, indices are indicators, you know, sometimes lag, but also on future ideals or projections or, or, but it's so hard because we're getting, we're getting so many completely unanticipated, unimaginable things getting thrown at us right now. And so, you know, that's a a lot that I just said, but basically it comes down to, you know, it's almost like moment by moment right now. And we don't even know where we're going to be in six months. That that's precisely correct because every single facet of this, every factor that goes into trying to assess how this is going to work. Okay, I own a multifamily complex. What do my collections look like? What does the employment history of my current residents who maybe are are they getting close to not being able to pay rent or are they actually doing a little bit better off for the time being until the federal subsidies run out? How is that going to play into this? Even in the larger economy, you know, a personal concern of mine is, you know, I don't know how the economy, I mean, I know how we did it last time. There was a lot of quantitative easing over several rounds because the assets that had been created got bought up so that they didn't get devalued quite so badly. You know, how does that all play out here? What's what's the dollar going to be worth? Are we going to be in a period? I mean, the classical economics would tell you, yeah, you write three and four trillion dollars worth of checks in excess of receipts. The only way out of that is to inflate the currency. However, you're doing it in a you know, a declining economic environment. So are you are you stuck like we were back in the late 70s with kind of stagflation, which no one even knows about now, <laughs> you know, where, where you have inflation, but stagnation on, on an economic front. So these, and, and in each case, it's sort of like, okay, what does tenant demand look like for high rise in New York City? I don't know. Tell me how scared people are about getting into a six by six elevator and I'll, and I'll let you know more. Or is there a, you know, a staging tech fix that can be done to that to mitigate that problem? What it really boils down to is there, these are going, and, and we're only going to sort it out once we start, start to see trends emerging as to how much each of these countervailing factors pushes against, you know, some other factor that's pushing exactly opposite and coming to an optimal solution. And unfortunately, just to get back to you know, Daniel's question, I think a lot of that boils down to, you know, 
personal decisions, which are not necessarily made on the basis of hard data, but on really squishy things like feelings and fears and optimism and, and where each of us individually shakes out on all that stuff in the context of our personal economic circumstances moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's spot on. Out of PNI, and I know, Craig, you and I have spoken about this before. You know, we love talking about behavioral economics and just this idea of investors or individuals, you know, not always behaving rationally. And so, you know, now we're in this interesting scenario where, you know, a lot of those theories, I think, are going to be tested and we'll see uh, how folks behave going forward. And, you know, for a group like us, and I would think for for most you know, investment firms, whether you're real estate or otherwise, it's about being, you know, flexible and nimble, of course, but, you know, also being patient. You know, one thing we talk about a lot is the type of real estate we're investing in doesn't require us to be a first mover. Uh, We feel much more comfortable sitting back, assessing the data, and then, you know, leveraging relationships to make, you know, what we believe are, are smart investment decisions. You know, there are groups, on the other hand, who are out there trying to, you know, benefit from you know, just being more forward thinking, forward looking. Maybe you know, there is a period of time, you know, particularly during the beginning of COVID, where you know you may have been able to find a larger discount on a property than you can today. You know, in my opinion, you are more often than not taking on much more risk than you know potential gain you were you were acquiring, but. You know, there are folks out there kind of behaving in, in a variety of ways, depending on their own individual risk appetites. And so just a long way of saying it, it'll be interesting to think how see how things play out in the same way we look back to 2008 as a, you know, a kind of historical learning point. Uh, I think this will be something similar. And, and, you know, however long it is in the future, when we deal with that major global economic issue that results from you know, climate change or, you know, something else kind of outside, you know, the hands of, of humans or the control of humans, rather, uh, I think we'll point to this and, and use a lot of this data as well. And so at the very least, really interesting time to be alive. It is. And, and I think, you know, one of the interesting things that investors should be looking forward on, you know, as they contemplate investing into a post-COVID world and, and selecting investment managers who you know are are offering products for investment. You know, let's not forget that pre-COVID we were in a pretty toppy market. You know, we and just some of the fundamental data under that, we have had an exceptionally lengthy period of very very low interest rates. Now, the impact that that has on capital values for people who are, you know, contemplating entering the real estate market is, you know, low interest rates means you can bid up price because your leverage is a lot cheaper. It allows you to offer, to put more leverage for per dollar of cash flow than otherwise, and you're sort of chasing values up. I, I think it's very important to take a look at you know, who was smart and, and didn't buy the last deal before we learned about COVID. It, it, it's because it, it really, and I'm not 
in the in the business of dispensing investment advice, but I do know that the people that made it out of the last one better were those that were maybe a little more sober and weren't chasing the last 200 basis points of return and were much more interested in being solid stewards of capital, you know, making sure that downside was protected either on the revenue side or on the capital value side or some combo platter of of both or other factors. I, I do think it will be like every other shakeout there will be winners and losers in this. And the losers, I mean, I, I mentioned that on average, we are much better prepared for this one than we were in the 08-09 global financial crisis. You know, we're in the low 50s levered as opposed to the mid 60s then. But there are still those firms that are very highly levered that, you know, whether it's in real estate or in stocks, you know, where they're margined up and, and leverage is a very unforgiving thing. And, you know, to, to the extent that people were aggressive on pricing and levered up, those are going to be the ones that where the chickens come home to roost fastest and, and most brutally. And, and that happens in every market decline. And, and to be honest, that's the most challenging dynamic we face as stewards of capital for you know retail investors of you know varying investment sophistication right which is this idea that if i show you a project that has a return profile that you know is high teens maybe low 20s from an average annual return that presents really really attractive to you but you know we know from our experience that the risk in that transaction, uh, given all the other factors that exist in the marketplace today, is probably not worth it. And so, you know, we live in this world where we have to find this happy medium where investors are saying, well, I'm okay with 60% leverage, even though that takes my, you know, 15 IRR deal at 75% LTV, you know, down to a 12, you know, in a vacuum. And some investors get that, a lot of them them don't. You know, they look at return profiles in a vacuum, unfortunately. And we spend a lot of time, we share a lot of educational materials, we we record these podcasts trying to get that point across that every deal needs to be looked at on a risk-adjusted basis. And there are a variety of factors that play into what creates risk, and there are different ways to look at downside protection. But that's always been the challenge with the retail investor is finding that happy medium where you put something in front of them that they like and they want to invest in, but that also you know, kind of protects them from some of these known biases that you know, we know exist. And you know, from personal experience, are, are really easy to get excited about a deal that has uh, you know, huge potential upside. Um, you know, we're we're all chasing yield in a lot of respects, and you know that's where uh, a lot of times it makes sense to you know rely on real estate professionals to say, hey, this is the universe of you know risk profiles that you should be looking at for you know reason X, Y, and Z. And so, a little bit of an aside, uh, but you've just this whole thing is very given the the current uncertainty that exists today. That way of thinking, in my opinion, has become more important than ever. I completely agree, and I would point to one metric, and it's it's one of the things 
I always love looking at when I'm looking at a potential deal um, or understanding someone else's deal is how much of that total, you, you mentioned IRR, how much is of that total return is cash flow along the way versus terminal value when you exit the property. And, you know, because terminal value or, or exit pricing, you know, even though it's five or seven or 10 years down the road can, can have an enormous influence on total return. It matters more when there's higher leverage involved. And so, you know, these things are kind of like a balloon. You squeeze it in one place and it's going to pop out in another. <laughs> um, and, you know, there is sort of an organic thing. And, and in the market running up to the current crisis, things were pretty fully priced. And it, you know, to me, what placing a lot of emphasis on terminal value means really is that you're making a levered bet on what capital markets are going to look like five or seven or 10 years in the future, whenever it is that you're going to do that. Because if that deal that seven years hence you are selling is not being sold into the same kind of capital market, if capital is more limited, it's going to limit the ability of your buyer to pay up. Therefore, you know, that's going to be a big driver of your return. And so it's always with an eye to that downside protection. I, I you know, fundamentally, I agree with you on that. It's, it's absolutely. And, and, and investors have short memories, right? Because over the last, you know, seven, eight plus years, you know, what we've seen across the board is, is cap rate compression. And so, you know, deals that didn't measure up on a cash flow perspective for lack of a better way of saying it, were bailed out generally across the board by cap rate compression. That's not something we expect to see going forward. You know, if it happens, great. Well, I'll take the additional upside. But you know, you need to be underwriting twenty-five to fifty bips of cap rate expansion at least. You know, we would think into your exit cap. But you're right. The the significant majority of investor returns on most of these types of private real estate syndications come at at sale, and the sale is heavily impacted by the exit cap rate. And these deals, you know, this is something I lament about all the time, are forward-looking projection-based, which makes it very easy to create a narrative that is not always supported by underlying data. And so, you know, having groups, financial professionals acting as intermediaries who are able to uh, kind of help even the playing field, so to speak, and in terms of how you underwrite and evaluate transactions, you know, we think is particularly important. You know, it's part of the reason why we exist. I could not possibly agree more. Look, the, the most optimistic human being on the planet Earth is a real estate sponsor. <laughs> you know, and as investment managers, it's your job, it's my job to you know, put the veil of reality over things <laughs> and, and to say, well, that's, that's all great. And it's lovely that you're, you're, you know, projecting out a 16% return, but do you really think interest rates are going to stay exactly where they are for the time being? Do you really think you're going to get 10% per year compound annual growth in rents? 
I don't think so. What is the incremental return on the money you're getting from me to reinvest in this project and improve its performance? Is that realistic? How have you figured in the brand new apartment complex down the street that's in permitting right now is going to start construction in the next seven months? And what's that going to do to your rent roll? And, and it's, and maybe it's, <laughs> it's just the fact of having been in this for over 25 years, you know, you learn every trick in the book and, and you see how it, how it works. It's, it is fascinating and, and we need optimistic real estate sponsors, but we also very clearly need, and the value has been demonstrated of more sober voices functioning as an intermediary, you know, between the direct users and providers of that capital. Yeah, I think that's such a great statement and probably a really great place to wrap up. As you were saying that, I was thinking about the word real within real estate. And what came through as you're saying this is that we have to be realistic. Like this, like really realistic. Like we this these veils and these ideas and these ideals. But at the end of the day, it may be boring because practical is boring and pragmatic is boring, but I think we stand a better chance of realizing the gains that we all want if we, if we kind of keep our feet on the ground. So that, that as you were speaking, I, I really thought about that and, you know, just an incredible amount of, of wealth that comes, that comes from you. We'd love to have you on again, maybe when we're actually coming out of, Whatever this is, the these this massive crisis of sorts. We'll see how we'll see how well I did. <laughs> yeah, let's have that conversation. But I'm I'm sure that I'm sure that you'll do well. So thanks again so much for for joining us and sharing so much insight in, in multiple different ways. It's it's been very informative and very educational. Well, the pleasure's been mine. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode. And especially, we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.